Amen, indeed. And thank you to our music team for leading us this morning. Some deep waters in those songs and more deep waters ahead. Would you pray with me? Father, it's a privilege to follow you and to do so under the favorable gaze that we have from you in Christ our Lord. We ask, Lord, that you would be for us that driving and compelling object of our hearts. You've made this world full of joys and pleasures, but as we've sung, we ask that there would be nothing in any joy that charms us if it's not connected to you. We also pray, Lord, that even in our sorrows, they would look forward with hope because it were not in grief to harm us if it comes from your hand. And we thank you that you have revealed yourself so completely that our faith, our walk with you can be built on truths so glorious that we can gaze at them for our entire lives and and never run them dry. And may we do that even this morning as we turn to our text. Through your spirit, would you give us understanding and also, Lord, a heart that's quick to obey. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is a privilege to jump back into the Gospel of John and to finish the conversation we started last week. If you've got your copy of God's Word, I'd encourage you to take it out and open it to John chapter 8. As you are able, I would invite you to stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading from John chapter 8, beginning in verse 48 to the end of the chapter. God's Word says this, The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. 
quite a passage we come to this morning. And I want to begin with this question. What is a Lord? What is a Lord? We use this word so much. It's right at the heart of that summary of the gospel that Paul gave us in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus is Lord and believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. We use that word all the time. And I, I wonder if sometimes we forget what it means to call Jesus Lord, to recognize him as Lord. If it becomes sort of this title, it just sort of means I feel something special about Jesus or, you know, this is my way of saying, yes, I'm a Christian because I, I acknowledge Jesus as Lord and lose the practical implications of why our lives have to be lived differently if in fact we have a Lord and if that Lord is Jesus. And this morning we've got good stuff in here. Uh, just this passage is so rich. It's the second half of the conversation that Jesus has had with the believers, those who profess to believe in Jesus after he gave his lie to the world discourse. And as we saw last week, that conversation has taken a bit of an ugly turn where right after saying, we believe you, they've argued with every single thing Jesus has said since. And now we get to this point in the conversation where they're just throwing out petty objection after petty objection. And we're going to see Jesus keeps sweeping those aside because he has a purpose in this conversation and he's not going to allow it be, to be sidetracked. He intends to reveal himself in some of the most breathtaking ways in all of the Gospels and to show us what it means to be a true disciple with Jesus as our Lord. And I want to see this morning then three lessons from our study of this text that all point to the Lordship of Jesus. And it begins with this, obey the Lord of life, obey the Lord of life in verses 48 to 51. You can see there at the beginning of 48, it opens by saying the Jews answered and said to him, and so they're about to respond. They're answering. What are they answering? Well, they're answering Jesus who just said, hey, you dishonor me and you don't believe me, which means you're not of God. You're of the devil. They are a little provoked by that. That's not a very nice thing to say in their opinion. And so they are ready to respond to Jesus, identifying them as the children of the devil. And they do so with this very carefully thought through theological argument. And it goes like this. Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Ha, take that. It's the only place in all the Gospels where Jesus is called a Samaritan. And it may be because they've been talking a lot about paternity. Jesus has been telling them, hey, you say you're descendants of, Dave, or excuse me, of Abraham, but you're not spiritual descendants of Abraham because... He believed what God was saying, and you don't. You're saying that you are children of God the Father. But God the Father sent me and gave me my message and affirms my miracles, and you reject me, me which means you can't be of him. You must be of the devil. It's been this spiritual paternity test, and so I think that's part of the reason they're throwing it back in Jesus' face. I mean, to be called a Samaritan is a derogatory slur in this culture anyway, but particularly here, this just goes back to that whole running line of, of offense they've been taking with, you know, where's your daddy, Jesus? Who do you think you are? 
what are you doing calling us out and saying that we're not true Israel, we're not true followers of God? Maybe you're the one who's a spiritual and physical half-breed, which is how they consider the Samaritans. Secondly, they accused Jesus of having a demon. That was not uncommon. That was one of their favorite go-to insults. And it made sense on one level to be called a, a demon-possessed person was sort of their version of calling somebody crazy. Erratic behavior and nonsensical language was, was often attributed to demon possession, sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly. But also I have to remember in the life of Jesus, there's no arguing with the supernatural power that has been on display. A lot of the folks here in this crowd have probably eaten the food he made out of nowhere. They've seen him heal people and not the kind of healings where somebody walks up on stage you've never met before and says, I think it hurts right here. And you wave your hands and they're like, much better, thank you. These are the kind of healings where it's like, we've seen this guy for 30 years and his legs don't work. And now he's running and leaping. Supernatural power that's undeniable. Well, you can only attribute it to one of two places. God or the demonic realm. They attribute the power that Christ is obviously demonstrating to God. Well, the game's up. And so they've consistently attributed the miraculous work of Christ to Satan instead. Look how Jesus then responds to this pretty ridiculous, but also very mean-spirited attack. In verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. I want you to notice this is so skillful the way in which Jesus already is beginning to turn the conversation back to his point that he's trying to make and avoiding the endless rabbit trail of defending his parentage, defending his sanity. He's not going to say, hey, you know, what are you guys talking about? I've had a whole bunch of cognitive ability tests this week. I'm doing just fine. He's not going to play that game, right? He simply says, I don't have a demon. His control, his message, his affirming miracles all make that, con- that accusation just laughable on the surface. And he completely even ignores the issue of whether or not he's a Samaritan because it doesn't matter to this particular question. Now, the lineage of Jesus is very important because he must be the descendant of David to sit on David's throne like we just sang about. But in this conversation, it's not an actual debate about his bona fides for being a Davidic descendant. They're just trying to throw a slur at him to dishonor him and he's just like I'm not playing that game I'm not playing that game let's go back instead to the question of my relationship with God and your relationship with God that's what we're going to talk about Jesus is saying and so he goes to say look I honor my father and that is manifestly true the crowd just last week had been challenged to find a single example in the life of christ where he had ever done anything unrighteous and they couldn't come up with a single one and they know that his words have been words that have been spoken both with scriptural truth and clarity and also as has been recorded throughout the gospels with an authority nobody has ever heard he's a righteous man who speaks the righteous words of god with authority Jesus honors the Father. In contrast to that, the Jews are the ones who are dishonoring the one who is honoring God. Do you see how Jesus is now already turning their accusation and focusing the spotlight back on them and their conscience 
and their relationship with God. And he concludes his defense here by addressing what has been an underlying accusation that first popped up all the way back in John 8:13, when they accused Jesus of tooting his own horn. They said, who do you think you are? You're testifying all these things about yourself. Your testimony is worthless. And Jesus says, I'm not testifying about myself. My father is testifying of me. And that's what he notes here again. He is not seeking his own glory. He is not the author of his message. He's not the planner of his actions. He's simply being obedient to the father. And so it is God the father not the Jewish crowd, who is the one who has the role of seeking glory, who is the one who has the role of judging. And notice Jesus leaves it a little ambiguous as to who is being sought out and who is being judged. Because that cuts both ways. The same Father, who is the one that is seeking out the glory of His Son and is judging that His Son is acceptable in His sight, is the same one who has the authority to seek out what is the true state of the heart of the crowd and to judge them as well. Jesus says, you you misunderstand who's actually got an opinion that matters in this conversation. Who has the right to judge? God. Who do you need to answer to? God. What are you wasting all your time doing? Hurling vitriol at me. So before we look at our main point here that Jesus has now finished pivoting towards, he's now set them up to hear what he's been wanting to say from the beginning of this exchange. I do want to stop here for a moment to note a couple quick lessons because this is such a great example of what persecution usually looks like and how to respond to it. And our first lesson is this. Most persecution is verbal slander. Most persecution is verbal slander. It's actually comparatively rare that persecution is physically violent, though tragically throughout history that is not uncommon. But most persecution in Scripture and in history is in the form of lies that assassinate the character of a believer in order to try to silence the message of a believer. This shouldn't surprise us. What does the father of lies do whenever somebody is speaking truth? He lies about them. That is plan A, and it's often very effective, which is why God's people are often accused of the worst things imaginable. So when that happens, we should not be surprised. We shouldn't be shocked. If you've spoken up for Christ in a humble but true way in your workplace, if you stood up for Christ in a humble but truthful way within your extended family, and all of a sudden this just vicious off-the-wall rumor comes out of nowhere... We shouldn't be surprised. Assuming that accusation is not true, that's a different story. Everybody doesn't like it when a flagrant, unrepentant hypocrite starts pretending to have the moral high ground. But assuming that we are in humility speaking the truth of Christ in love and those accusations come, that's a good sign that your testimony is effective enough to begin to prick consciences and get the attention of of our enemy. And that leads us to our second lesson, which is this. Appeal then to the conscience when that persecution comes. Jesus doesn't respond with indignation and personal offense. How dare you question my character? 
let me go and get my birth records. That would all be a distraction, a distraction from the very thing that has provoked their attack, which is a provoked conscience. And Jesus instead appeals to that. We're accused of being a hater. Right, that's a common one in this culture. It's easy to want to be like, no, I'm not. Here's the 1913 Webster's Dictionary definition of hater. And you'll notice for all the following technical reasons, I do not qualify and I'm going to debate you to the ground on this. And that's a distraction. Why are they calling you a hater? Well, typically because something what you've just said has shown a light on their heart. And they don't like what they see, so they'd rather talk about yours. And instead of getting into a long debate, we can just say, you know what? All of our hearts are ugly. They're all ugly. But there's a solution to the ugliness of our hearts, and that solution is Jesus Christ. And that's why our our final, I think, lesson here is the valuable role of directing people then to the Father. People want to fight you. They want to have issues with you. Because if you are where the message stops, none of us are worthy of being a particularly reliable Savior. And it's easy to find falls and flaws and... Falls and flaws? Faults and flaws? That's what I'm trying to say. With us to discredit our message. But if we are bearing the message of another who is perfect and we direct them to have business with him then they must stand exposed in their heart before the one who sees all. Direct people to the Father, just as Christ here keeps redirecting this conversation to the crowd and their relationship to God. And that then sets them up to hear the main point he has been trying to make, which is in verse 51, where he begins by saying, Truly, Truly, I say to you, truly, truly, amen, amen. You know, we end our prayers with amen. Jesus begins his important statements with amen, saying, this is going to be so good, I'm going to amen it right up front. Pay attention. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Wow. This is that first glorious revelation of Christ in our passage this morning. Jesus is not some Samaritan demoniac. He is the Lord of life. And Jesus gives us a promise that will be true for us if we keep his word. So what does it mean to keep his word? Well, the word here simply means to protect something and to persist in it. To protect and to persist. He's saying you need to love my word, treasure it, guard it, keep it, don't let it escape, hold it as valuable and keep it close and then persist in it. It's not something that you can just say, I got it, it's in a lockbox, I know it's safe if I ever need to go find it. We need to be living it out and persisting in it. That's what it means to keep his word. Well, what is his word? Well, it's the full revelation of God concerning the work of his son, which as Christ pointed out, does not only include all of the New Testament revelation, but it even includes, as Christ said back in John 5, 39, all of the Old Testament scripture, which, as he said, speaks entirely of him. The entirety of God's word is what we are to guard and what we are to persist in. And if we will do that, what's the promise? The promise is that Jesus can cause his followers to avoid ever seeing 
death. Literally, it says he will not gaze intently at death into the ages. They may travel through the valley of the shadow of death, and let's be real, that can be genuinely terrifying. But death itself will never come face to face with the one who keeps the word of Christ. Instead, the keeper of Christ's word will experience the present and future joy of eternal life. And what is that eternal life? Well, Christ himself tells us in John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To know God and to know Christ and to enter into a relationship with him is the essence of eternal life. And this is a bond that once has been formed, can never be broken, as Paul summarized in that soaring peak of truth in Romans chapter 8, when he says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril stop there for just a moment? All the things that are on that list so far are stuff that happens now. That's the worst of what we experience in this fallen world. There's nothing in this life, even right now, that can separate you from the present experience of the love of Christ that he has set upon you. This is not simply a future hope. This is a present reality that cannot be broken. And it does, yes, include the sword. It is a future reality that cannot be broken by death itself. Because let's face it, Bad things happen to, I'm not going to say good people, but I'll say God's people. Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these terrible, real, actual, horrifying things that happen to God's people, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is the eternal life God offers freely to us. But get this obedience to the truth is the experience of eternal life. Obedience to the truth is the experience of eternal life. What do I mean by that? I mean this. Eternal life is knowing God, experiencing God and his love for us, and entering into an eternal relationship with him. Obedience is nothing less than how we love in return. That is why Jesus said, Do you want to keep all the law and the commandments? Love God and love people. What does it mean to obey perfectly? Love God and love people. So we see God has demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We demonstrate that we have come to love God and to have received eternal life by our obedience to his son. That's what it looks like. We do not earn 
the eternal life Christ offers through what we do, that would be a work and it would give us an opportunity for boasting. And Paul's pretty explicit about that in Ephesians 2. No way. The free offer of God's grace is just that. But the inevitable sign of one who has come to experience the love of God by entering into a relationship with God is that ongoing pattern of learning to keep the words of Christ so that as we have been loved by God, we love him through obedience in return. And so we must ask this question of ourselves, is Jesus your Lord of life? Because if he is, he needs to be the Lord of your life. We are the keepers of his word because we have been loved by him. Finally, before we move on, death should be mourned, but not feared. Death should be mourned, but not feared. This is not a passage that says, hey, you're never going to see death, so don't worry about it. Tragedy and hardship and suffering and death come into your life and we just need to put a good stoic Christian face on it and say, no big deal. It's not what this passage is teaching. In fact, we must weep with those who weep. We must. The valley of the shadow of death holds sorrows none can express in words, which is why the only correct response sometimes is simply to weep. It is the most cursed part of the curse upon this fallen universe to see suffering and death. But sorrow and despair are not the same. As David wrote at a time when he thought he was going to die in Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may last for the night, but a shout, shout of what? A shout of joy comes in the morning. And so it would be wrong to understand our verse this morning to mean that we should not weep in the night of affliction. Indeed, we should. And if you are in the night of affliction, it is right for you to share that that is where you are with others so that they may come and weep with you. But a clock is ticking. And the time of sorrow for the believer is always like sand in an hourglass, trickling away until the time for a joyous morning has come. Man, Christ's claim to be the very Lord of life here should have frozen this audience in mid-sentence and should have given away to a silence in which Jesus could explain this fantastic news. But instead they show once again that apart from God, opening our eyes to understand his word, we miss the point entirely. And that moves us to our second lesson this morning, to confess the Lord of history. In verses 52 to 56, in verse 52, the Jews respond to this incredible revelation by saying, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. When you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you are no greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? So here we go again. We can simultaneously sympathize with their ignorance and confusion, but we can also marvel at their inability to see what is right in front of them. 
And here's the interesting part. They don't like what Jesus just said. And that isn't because they have no idea what his words imply. Indeed, the reason they're angry is because they do understand what the words of Jesus imply. They just refuse to believe and accept the central claim of Christ behind those words. The Samaritan charge drops off here, but they double down on the demon accusation. Their logic is simple. Abraham and all the prophets heard the voice of God. They followed and proclaimed the words of God. And they're all dead. As Mary might say, Lord, they stinketh. Jesus says, his words that come from God are able to keep someone from dying. If this is true, Jesus is proclaiming a superior revelation to Abraham and all the prophets. And it means that he must be a superior messenger to Abraham and to all the prophets. And that's why they end up asking Jesus Just who do you think you are? Boy, you are getting way too big for your britches. Right? They've been on this the whole time. Who's your daddy? Who do you think you are? What authority gives you to say this? Why would you challenge us? We know who we are. Where do you come from? And now they're saying, this has just gotten way out of hand, buddy. Jesus answered, verse 54, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Ouch. Jesus starts by rejecting how their question is framed. They said, who do you make yourself out to be? And he says, if I'm making myself out to be something, it doesn't matter. If I'm making myself out to be glorious, my glory is is worthless. It's not how this works. God is the one glorifying Jesus. And there can then be no questioning of the authenticity of Jesus' words. If God is the one making the Son glorious, then you must accept the Son or you're rejecting God. And so he says, you're telling me This God is my God. But you're rejecting the one he sent. You're rejecting the one he glorifies. You're rejecting the one who speaks his words. You don't know him. You do not know this God that you claim. But I do. It is clear to both sides of this conversation that there is a divide and there are two spiritual natures. One aligned with God, one not aligned with God. And Jesus says, if I agreed with your estimation of me, I would be a liar, just like you and just as much a son of the devil as you are. But I know God. And I, unlike you, because he has accused them, unlike you, I keep God's word. Wow. Here's where the Jews had made a mistake. Abraham and the prophets had indeed shuffled off their mortal coil. They had experienced physical death. But all those who had died in faith in the future promises of God had not truly died at all. 
Indeed, they had entered into life even more abundantly after leaving this word world. Here is where the Jews were correct, however. Jesus is greater than Abraham and the prophets, and that is because he is not merely a prophet in history. He is the point of history. Jesus is about to teach us that true disciples understand and confess him as the Lord of history. Look at verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Jesus declares that Abraham himself, the one the Jews have all repeatedly trumpeted as their great ancestor, was exultant. This word rejoiced is a super strong one that basically means like giddy with joy at the thought of Christ's coming. When Jews spoke of the day, they were speaking of that day when the Messiah would come, when God's promises would be fulfilled, when the kingdom of God would be established. And Jesus now says, Abraham didn't simply look forward to the day, he looked forward to what? My day. My day. It's all about me. Hebrews describes this forward-looking faith of Abraham. We read about it in Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 8. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. We can laugh about her laughing and then naming her kid laughter. But she trusted that the one who had promised was faithful. Therefore, there was born even of one man and him as good as dead at that as many descendants as the stars in heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is on the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed, which means to send a cheerful greeting from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Abraham rejoiced that the Messiah would come and in a way either through the eyes of faith or through a vision that's not recorded in scripture Jesus says he not only rejoiced that it would come he saw it and he was glad believer know the story you're in Know the story you are in. Jesus is the Lord of history. He is the point of history. He is the object of joy for all who understand the purpose of history. Adam and Eve anticipated the coming of Eve's seed and took hope, even as the world descended into the jaws of the curse around them. Faithful Seth trusted God even as others fell away. Enoch walked with God until he was taken into heaven. 
Noah trusted the promises of God even when every thought and intention of every other family was always evil continually. And he lived to see the deliverance of God and God's promise never to wipe out humanity with a flood. And he died looking ahead to the fulfillment of God's promises. Job trusted that even physical death would not keep him from a bodily resurrection and the joy of standing with his Redeemer in the future. Abraham and Sarah trusted God and his promise for a kingdom, a people, and a seed, singular, who would secure blessings to the world. David rejoiced that the promised one would come through his lineage and worship the Messiah as his Lord, even though the Messiah had not yet been born. Isaiah viewed the coming of the servant of Yahweh, who would suffer and die and then rise again to rule forever. And so did Daniel, and so did Zechariah, and so did Micah, and so did Hosea, all the way down to Malachi, and then the last of the great Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist. It's all about Jesus. Always has been, always will be. Why did God say light shall shine out of darkness? Because he is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Why is there everything that is there? It's because God wants creatures made in his image to see the light of his glory and to see it in the face of Christ. It's all about him. So rejoice in the hero. Rejoice in the hero. We only have a couple choices. Wish the story were different. Like the Jews did. Wish the story was about them being the hero or us being the hero or be transfixed by the actual hero of the story, Jesus. Here's the thing. Did you know on November 2nd of this year, Jesus will be the Lord and purpose of history? Did you know on November 4th of this year, Jesus will still be the Lord and purpose of history. Amen? Absolutely. Preach it. Hearing these words of Jesus, how must their minds have been filled with glorious thoughts of the Messiah and the fulfillment of the hope of the ages? And that is why they now respond to Jesus saying, you are not old enough. It's a silly reply. But it will occasion one of the most jaw-dropping statements of Christ in all the Gospels in our last lesson about Christ this morning, and that is worship the Lord our God. Worship the Lord our God. Verse 57, so the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? They're not saying that because Jesus is getting close to the age of 50. It's because in this culture, brace yourself, 50 is when you became old. 50 is when you become old. For example, that was when, if you were from the Levitical tribe, you were expected to step down from your daily duties in the temple at the age of 50. And they're basically saying, you're not even old by our standards here in 8030-ish, and you're telling me you've met some dude that lived in 2000 B.C., Right, we're about as separate from Christ as Christ was from Abraham. Like, what are you talking about? This is, this is, come on. Right, that's the attitude here. Are you serious right now? This is getting out of hand, Jesus. 
And then Jesus says it. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. This is one of those verses that just gives you goosebumps. They were flabbergasted that Jesus would claim his existence stretched back 2,000 years. And Jesus replied by saying they've underestimated the nature of his claim. He is not simply old. He is the ancient of days. He isn't someone who had the pleasure of meeting Abraham. He is the one Abraham worshipped. Jesus clearly, without any possibility of ambiguity, takes for himself the covenant name of God himself. He doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He says, before Abraham came into being, I am. He is claiming not only to be the Lord of life who can prevent death, not only the Lord of history to whom all the faithful of all time have looked with anticipation, he is boldly claiming to be the Lord, our God. He is demanding worship. But what does he receive instead? How will those who have just a few verses ago professed to believe in him respond? Well, verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They understood Jesus' claim to deity. What had been unimaginable to them had just been spoken out loud. The consolation of Israel had just preached good news. Emmanuel, God with us, had just unveiled his true identity to them. And they want to kill him. Unlike the Jewish leaders who have been out to get Jesus from the beginning because of envy, this is the crowd that had been favorable to him. This is the group that had the best chance of recognizing and accepting their Messiah from a human perspective. But it is, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Through some miraculous sheltering of God, Jesus is hidden from his attackers and he leaves the temple. The Lord came into his temple and his people utterly rejected him. And what grace that Jesus did not utterly reject his people. I close with these Concluding thoughts. Jesus is God or he is wretched. Jesus is God or he is wretched. You see, the Jews' reaction to Jesus was the right reaction in every possible scenario except for the one where Jesus is God. If Jesus had been a liar and a child of the devil, he would have deserved death as a blasphemer. If he would have been a lunatic and demon-possessed, he would have deserved death as a blasphemer. Or he's the Lord who must be worshipped. Those are the only options that are in play here. So to all those who listen to the words of Christ in this passage this morning, our challenge is this. Worship Jesus as your God or reject him as a fraud, but do not tolerate him as interesting or inspiring. 
And for us who know Christ, who have been given eternal life and have received it, obey, confess, and worship Jesus as Lord. What aspect of my life is being lived as a rejection of the love of God because I tolerate sin and do not keep the word of Jesus? Commit that today is the day I repent and renew my experience of the eternal life I have in Christ. What worries of my heart and mind do I tolerate that cause me to forget that Jesus is the Lord of history? And how might I cast my cares on him this very day so that I can rejoice like Abraham at the still coming return of Christ to fulfill all his promises? Where have I failed to acknowledge the worth of Jesus as my God and lived as though I were master of my life? And Jesus merely is part of my support network. Today we can bow before him afresh. We who have received his grace should behold his face so that we who profess his glory should live a gospel story. And we who are slaves of Christ by choice should look to the future and rejoice. Would you pray with me? Father, fill our minds and our hearts with a deeper understanding of your Son, of who he is and what he has done, that we may love him more. And in loving him more, we may obey him more. To see and to know that our master is good, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, that he gives rest to our weary souls, even as we weary ourselves in joyful service to him. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to obey him, to confess him, and to worship him, and to love that everything points to him, beginning first, we ask, with our own lives, and then as we look around to the uttermost parts of the earth. This we ask for the glory of and in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.